All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Psalms 33 and 34, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Rhonda McKinney and family wanted to thank all that helped with the dinner for the funeral of Larry and just really appreciated how it all came together and they felt very blessed. Um, so thank you on behalf of that family for all your uh, heartfelt service to them in their time of grief. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that um, we'd hear these songs uh, in the way that they were intended to be heard and sung, that we would open our hearts to, if we don't feel this way, if we don't have these songs in our heart, that they would become the songs of our heart. As we see David so thankful for you and what you've done for him and um, through different seasons in his life, whether, whether it was good or bad, he always praised you and worshiped you. You're always his God. And we pray the same for ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 33 is a, a, a proclamation of God's wonderful sovereignty, his wonderful ability to step into our lives and accomplish things and bless us. And David couldn't help but write. And um, Psalm 34 is one that happens after a really strange incident that he has, which we'll read in 1 Samuel 21, 12 through 15, he runs into a situation where he's in front of a Gentile king and he has to feign madness to get out of trouble. And then he runs home and writes this song after it works. And so a couple interesting Psalms here. Verse one of 33, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with harp, make melody to him with an instrument of 10 strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. That starts everything off right when you get the musicians up tempo, you know, and practiced and ready, you know. Um, I like that. And that's the one word that I did circle out of those three verses was to play skillfully. You do need to practice, you know, in everything that you do for the Lord. I think we should do it as on for aim for excellence, not just uh, good enough for government work kind of thing. That's a phrase I heard a lot. Good enough for government work, close enough kind of thing. Well, when it comes to the Lord, we always want to bring him our best, absolute best. Our hearts prepared, um, holy hands without wrath, without any doubting. And then when it comes to the actual physical things, whether it is just playing a guitar or playing an instrument or um, any kind of skill that you have that you bring before God, it needs to be practiced and perfected and worked on. Uh, we don't want to give him our second best or laziness. We want to give him the best. And so David says, make sure you're skillfully prepared. Practice the song, you know, learn the, learn the notes. Um, that's good for anything in your life with, when it comes to the Lord. Um, practice studying the Bible. Practice praying. Practice singing, you know. I'm not a very good singer. Well, work on it in the car by yourself, you know. Try to hit those notes. See if you can develop an ear. And if you can't, well, roll the windows up and sing all the louder. Do the best you can. But bring what you have, you know. But don't be lazy in it. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works, or all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. David loved his 
love the word of the Lord, loved to hear it, loved to read it. He would um, memorize it. He would hide it in his heart. He's going to tell us that in Psalm 118 extensively. He's going to explain to us Psalm 119 and 118 and so on about the word of the Lord and how important it is. Today, unfortunately, it seems as I read that article, (laughs) there's a lot of articles and who knows how much of it's true or not, but very few senior pastors have a biblical worldview anymore. Um, They say something like 13% have a biblical worldview. And it seems far-fetched. I can't believe that. I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, they mean a complete and total biblical worldview. Not like they hit and miss on some subjects, but they really believe the Bible and it's playing out before their eyes. Well, that's about 13%, they say. And I think that has a lot to do with the lack of the Word of God. There's There's a lot of study in seminary. There's a lot of uh, doctrinal thesis is written, you know, uh, on certain subjects, but the Bible in total, received in total, letting it come together as one book written by one author and not dissected to the point of worthlessness, I think that's what's caused a lot of the problems is they don't receive this as the Word of God. You should, you know, some of the some of the bio, doctrinally, whether I believe or trust these guys or not in some of their, you know, beliefs and the way they grew up, but Martin Luther and, and Tyndale and Gutenberg and these guys that were, I mean, they died not just for their beliefs in Christianity, but for the word of God to get into the hands of the people. They wanted that. They, they said it's worth dying for to preserve this or to get this translated in such a way that the common man could read it. It was worth dying for. I don't know that a lot feel that way anymore in Christianity. The Word of God's a devotional book. It's a take it or leave it a lot of times. It's a, a, it's a spiritual smorgasbord, and it's no better than their book or their book in a lot of Christians' minds. And that's just not healthy. It's, you nullify the word of God in your life when you take it with a grain of salt. You do. It's to be believed. It's to be read. It's to be absorbed. It's to be absolute solid truth instruction for your life and we're to follow it to the letter. That's what it's, that's what it's for. And when it's not taken that way and it's, oh, I don't know about that or I don't know about this. Well, then it's, it's of no use. David understood the, the word of the Lord is right. It's correct. It's truth. You can't, it's not truthy. You know, it's truth. It is truth. Anything that is opposite it or comes against it or seems to ha- be at odds with God's word, well, it's false automatically. I don't know. I don't know how to discern. It's easy. This is truth. Everything that comes against it is false. It's not complicated. What's complicated is our willingness to, to accept that. David didn't have a problem with that, and David lived a life worth living. Christians grow when they absorb God's word, when they eat it, when they let it affect their lives, you know. Funny thing about wine tasting. I thought that was a, what a ridiculous thing. But it's, a, it's an art. It's a skill of some kind. But the first time I watched it, they, you, you know how it works? You probably do. No, we're not all, we, I'm sure we're aware. But because you're going to be tasting many, many different kinds of wines, you don't swallow it or you wouldn't make it to glass 27, you know. I understand the process and why. But a lot of people take Christianity the same way they do a wine testing. They take a little wine, they, 
you know, that's exactly how it is. <laughs> then they spit into a silver spittoon. Well, they got the flavor, they got the taste, they got the notes, you know, a nuttiness, you know. <laughs> but they never got absorbed into the body. It never affected them. And now, as you know how I feel about alcohol, and yet when Paul describes it, let's not be drunk with wine, let's be drunk in the spirit, he expects the Christian to be so absorbed with God's word that they look intoxicated with Jesus Christ. It's obvious that person is intoxicated with Jesus Christ. You know, you can tell. You can tell people walking home from the square. They're not exactly in a straight line. You know, they're a little wobbly. They're, you walk them, you know, oh boy, they're going to be face down in someone's, you know, grass. We had a guy come to our house on Market Street. You know, I'm popping out of bed and I run downstairs. Not telling you what I was wearing, but it was probably not appropriate to go to Hy-Vee in. I open the door and he just looks at me and kind of, oh, dude, you know, what do you want? I'm trying to find my house, you know, kind of get in the car. Let's go try to find your house. And I'm, I'm driving around Maryville. I said, where do you, where, what, what do you buy? What are you near? Are you anything? Hey. If you don't show me, you're going to the cops. I need to know where you need to go. Well, he's about a block away. The point was, it was obvious that he was intoxicated with something. As a Christian, we ought to be obvious with our intoxication with Jesus Christ. David was intoxicated with God. God's word had affected every aspect of David's life. Um, It should with us as well. I don't want to be worldly sober. You know, I want to be affected. It was worth dying for, for the old saints. It ought to be worth dying for today. Would you die for the Bible that's in your hand right now? It's a good question. Verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the the deep in storehouses. Uh, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's a good explanation for the fear. I, I, I run through contradictory scriptures in my mind sometimes. It appear that way. They're not. But they appear that way. And when I do that, when I'm not, when I'm not afraid to bring together two scriptures that seem to be at odds, I get a much better understanding of both. It's a safe thing to do. We don't have to be worried about, oh boy, that's, that's kind of embarrassing. The Bible says that and that. No, no, bring them together and read them. And what do they mean then? For example, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, yet perfect love casts out all fear. Which is it? You know, No, no, no. It helps us to understand. The fear of the Lord that he's talking about here is the fear of the fact how powerful is, how omniscient, how omnipotent, how amazing. I'm right, you know, wow, you know. When you see your dad lift up a sledgehammer and you're, the, you're three or four or five years old and he pounds down on that stake and you see it get driven into the ground, you're like, wow. Now you're not scared of him. You don't think he's going to do it to you, but you do have a reverence and an awe for the power that he has. My kids were sitting on my lap last night. They're not little anymore. 13-year-old Mariah and 10-year-old Bo that weighs the same as 13-year-old Mariah. <laughs> dad, remember when you could pick us both up? No, I don't. 
And we're not trying that today either. Oh, you can do it, Dad. And the idea is they want me to, you know, back and front. I can't do that anymore, you know? So the reverence and the awe is a little less at our house than when at first, and I was able to get all four kids, and I'd take them up to bed up the stairs with all four children, you know, and then, oh, Dad, that's great. That's the kind of fear we have of God. But that perfect love that they know I have for them casts out all fear of, well, pain and suffering and punishment and all those things. And so those two scriptures coming together were great. All David is saying is, I wish the whole earth feared the Lord because they should. Because he spoke this stuff into existence. He didn't fashion it. He didn't. It was no manufacturing process. He spoke and it happened. That's incredible power. David says, I wish the earth understood that, because they should. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. That's a, a wonderful description of his sovereignty. There is free will. There is choice within his sovereignty, within God's will. We do have that freedom of movement and, and, and all. But, but you will not choose a path that's going to thwart my plans, God says. I'm not, I'm, my son is coming. There will be a death on the cross. There will be forgiveness of sins. There, these things will take place. And he uses the free choice of all those people to bring about exactly what he wanted to bring about. That's the beauty of sovereignty and free will. Our choices, when God says, okay, do what your flesh wants to do. It's exactly what I need to happen, Judas. This is exactly what I need to happen. So I'm going to let Judas make that free will. Go for it. In my sovereignty, choose. Good job. 30 pieces of silver. That's exactly the fulfillment of the prophecy I said you were going to do. That's knowing ahead of time. And yet Judas made a choice and regretted that choice afterwards. All of those things come to play. David says, the Lord brings to nothing the counsel of the nations. The nations can get together if they want to. Tower of Babel, perfect example, you know. Come on, let's do this. We will, we will you know, we're going to make this and we're all going to be great. And this is going to be good. No, you're not. Not right now. I'm just going to change your languages that's sovereignty. That's the ability to do that. Now, he didn't take away their free will. You can keep building if you want to. You can't understand each other. You know, um, that's how he works. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. He, he works his way through this sovereignty, free will. And I think this is a wonderful, wonderful way to, to examine these things and to take these scriptures into our hearts is to watch him talk about these things. Um, a lot of bad things happen in the world. Um, we see that all the time. And he doesn't change those plans. Those plans of those people did have an effect. You know, it isn't all the time. And it isn't, it isn't like, well, it isn't like the millennial reign of Christ. It, it seems as we read through this thousand year reign of Jesus Christ where there's no sin, but people are still capable but there isn't any. So it's, it's as if it just gets stopped before it happens, which is kind of what we want now. We would love for God to go around and just stop everybody from sinning and doing bad things all over the... No, you're not going to drive that car drunk. No, you're not going to go into that school. No, you're not going to do this, that, or the other thing. We wish he'd just do that. 
I don't know that we think it all the way through for ourselves. We'd probably be sitting at home more often than not because of our sin that we don't think we do, but we do affect other people when we walk out the door. God doesn't do that. He makes sure that the plans of man don't affect his plans. And that's where we can rest and be assured that whatever we see unfold before our eyes is well within the scope of God's sovereignty and his plan. It isn't his idea. It isn't his goal. He didn't make anything like that happen. But it is going to be okay within the grand scheme of things. We think about our life and we think about the hundred years that we live and how we want it perfect and flawless. I don't want problems. I don't want trials, tribulations. So that's not, because isn't that what he just said? The plans of man, he's going to make sure those don't happen. No, no, it's within the, the scope of salvation, within the scope of the book that we're reading. It all falls within that. So, that other part there, verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It is a blessing. David isn't just saying Israel, although that's probably what he intended. It's any nation that chooses God to be their God is a blessed nation. And we say that a lot. And, 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 I, believe, and I think we believe it for the most part in our hearts that a God, our God, being the God of this nation is the best plan for this country. Um, we have to make sure we maintain that, that order that Christianity is above patriotism. Patriotism comes alongside and can be a blessing provided patriotism falls under the authority of our God. When we have that plastic patriotism that we feel we've blessed God with, look at our country. Of course, he chooses us. Look how wonderful we are. We love liberty. We love freedom. We love, so of course God can choose us. No, 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 no. It's the other way around. We have those things because of the Lord, because we believe the Bible, because we read it. Think of the nation, and it helps me understand a lot of people. I don't think Christians should be in politics. I think every Christian should be in politics. There's just, there's this, I think a lack of understanding of where we should be or what we should do or what our role and responsibility is. Well, my citizenship is in heaven. Well, that doesn't abdicate your responsibility to be a citizen of the United States. Um, that doesn't mean you get to sit back on your hands and say, well, I'm glad I'm a citizen of the, of heaven. Yeah. What I see our country going through, you got to think of our country as a person. I think I've shared this example before. Like the nation of Israel is like a person, actually was, Jacob. His name got changed to Israel. So when we talk about Israel, we're truly talking about the patriarch Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a tricky guy and he needed the Lord, right? He needed to submit. Once he submitted, and that's what Israel means, governed by God, he began to get his life straightened out. It was a humbling experience for him. And he went back and forth sometimes between Jacob and that was deceiver and Israel governed by God. But towards the end of his life, it really got solid, especially after Joseph delivered them from the famine. Everything seemed to fall together and that nation was birthed basically. Well, I believe the United States is the same way. We were a nation of Gentiles and Jews and everybody, just a big group and we weren't sure, mostly colonists, but we, not to go into great detail of our history. But we decided and made a decision that we're going to let God be our God. 
in our nation. We're going to follow his precepts. We're going to develop our government in such a way that it is consistent with Scripture. There's going to be freedom. There's going to be liberty that God calls us to. And we're going to make sure that's ratified in a constitution so that it's not a whim thing based off of man's opinion that we waffle between. These are self-evident truths that have to be, they have to be noted. Whether you believe in those self-evident truths or not doesn't make any difference. It's now ratified. We will follow those things. Those can't be changed or shouldn't be changed is the idea. And because we did that, we began to purge ourselves of sin. It's like any new person who doesn't know the Lord comes to know the Lord. God begins to work and convict and change. And we begin to, oh, well, maybe we should treat everybody equally. You know, Maybe we should start uh, giving people ownership of their property. Maybe, maybe they should deserve to make or not make, depending on, these are all biblical truths. If a man won't work, then he shouldn't eat. That's, that's the Lord. That's what he says. That's what Paul says. That's what the word of God says. He also says, though, give, 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 but voluntarily. It's never confiscated. So when those who say, well, Jesus was a socialist, he absolutely was not a socialist at all. He wanted us to give. He wanted us to have generous spirits and hearts, but never through confiscation, always through willing free will offerings. And so you see this nation that was kind of rough, you know, begin to follow the Lord and his precepts. And all of a sudden we start thinking we need to get rid of slavery. And, and I think we need to have rights and self-evident truths that people need to be created. And there needs to be sanctity of life. And there needs, we need to think about these things. And all of a sudden we begin to do And then we have our moments of our Jacob in our country. I think the 60s are a great example. The Roaring Twenties, a great example. Uh, several times in history where we fall back into old tricky, tricky, tricky Jake. We begin to follow our own precepts, and then we get the 30s. It kind of brings us back from the 20s. The Dust Bowl, the you know, stock market crash. Dust Bowl was like four or five years, I think. How, does anybody know how long it was exactly? What a tremendous time to sit out there and watch and people actually starving. Not like they didn't want to get up out of their house and go get the food, but like there wasn't any. It's an amazing thing to read. And to think that wasn't judgment or that wasn't a corrective moment in our, in, our, in our nation's history from God himself, you know? Hey, the roaring 20s, that was not me. That was all you. And I'm done with it, you know? Now let's get back. And they came back and oh, we were strong. And we got strong. And then we had the 60s, you know, in the 70s kind of thing. And we go through these moments. Here's the thing inside of every human being, every Christian that's a believer in Jesus Christ, the spirit wants to rule and the flesh wants to rule. And there is that constant war and that constant battle. Our country as a nation goes through that. Sometimes we let the flesh rule. I didn't say a name. And sometimes we let the spirit rule. And sometimes we... Look, the nation whose God is the Lord, that means is in charge. That's a nation that's blessed. And when we're not, and we put fleshy people into office, and we allow fleshy people to rule and reign and make laws, then that is the direction of the body, that the head is now reflecting the body, and we go through a season of, I believe, backsliding in the Lord. And then we get together, and we decide the body says, enough of this backsliding, we need to get back to the Lord, and we put people in office that reflect the needs and the desires of the body and the heart of the body to put now the spirit in charge. 
So when you wonder what you should vote for or how you should vote, you need to vote for Christians, people that are born-again believers in Jesus Christ. If there aren't any on the ticket, you need to run. That'd be great. We'd love to have you in there. You're not going to have fun. <laughs> it's going to be hard. It's a calling. Being a leader in this, in this environment is an absolute miserable, hard, difficult calling, but that's what we're called to do. We can do those things. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're a born-again believer, you can walk through those things. You may feel like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, like Daniel in the middle of Babylon sometimes, but you stand in the fiery furnace and you let him be your defender. David knows that. Blessed is the man or the nation whose God is the Lord. Verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. I like that. It's individual. God is into the individual. He wants us to all have a basic following, but we all have different gifts and abilities and, and, and things to bring to the table. He fashions their hearts individually. And the, the person needs to know that. God has fashioned my heart. I was recently asked to give a uh, recommendation for somebody who wants to go to a, 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 a Bible school, and they say, what are, what are their strengths? I said, well, they're these. And what do you think their weaknesses are? Well, they're not exactly like me. That's their weakness, you know. <laughs> I had to think about that. I tried to just skip the question. I just said, just, just submit. I don't need to talk about their weaknesses. I have no idea, you know. You must fill this out, big red letters. You cannot submit without writing. That. Okay, fine. So I wrote something down. But I started off with, that's a hard question. I said, because I don't know what God has made them for. And so although there are some things that I would like to see them do in their lives or change, I don't know that that's necessarily what God has for them. So I don't know necessarily what their weaknesses are. I do know what their strengths are, though. And that's really the focus. It needs to be the focus. And that's probably the, one of the problems with distance learning. But Because um, you don't see people face to face. I think we've lost that. This is a side note and, and, and definitely not a part of the teaching today, but it's going to be now. Um, um, when, when they shut down the Bible College, Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta and sold off that land after Pastor Chuck died and Brian Broderson took over, um, it was an absolute disaster, by the way. But, oh well. Um, they went to distance learning, and you can't simulate what happened on those campuses through the mail or through the internet. You can't. Because one of the requirements for on campus is service. You're in the kitchen. You're being treated like a servant. No, you don't get to work your way up the ladder. You're a, you're a guy with a shovel doing the landscaping. Even if you're a 35-year-old man who's a CEO of some company, you know, and you decide to follow the Lord, you're going to dig dirt. You know, and you're going to have to work through the fact that this 20 something is telling you what to do. And you've got to work that out in your heart because it has nothing to do with landscaping. It has nothing to do with serving food. It has everything to do with matching up with knowledge with service and a humble heart. Because if you have this without the humble heart, it's absolutely worthless. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard balance, I understand, but you've got to have that. That's one of the hardest things I do as a pastor is try to teach people how to be servants. And guess how I get to teach people to be servants? I got to treat them like that sometimes. They don't like it. They don't like it. 
That's not how you're supposed to talk to me. A loving pastor wouldn't say that. No, 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 you understand what I'm trying to take you to a different place. You're not a pew sitter anymore. You're moving into a place where you're stepping back, making sure that everybody comes in the door is taken care of and you don't matter. You know, it's a hard thing to do. And you miss that when you do that distance learning. You miss that opportunity because here in this environment, well, I'm going someplace else. And you walk over to the church that doesn't ask you to do a thing. They don't expect anything. They talk to you nicely. They treat me like a volunteer. Then you're always going to be one. You'll always be one. And you'll never have that servant's heart. It's a hard thing. And they missed that. I don't know what God wants to make every person, but I do know this. He wants them to know God's word. And I know that he wants them to have humble hearts, which means it doesn't bother me how I'm treated. It doesn't make any difference to me. I can work with anybody. I can do anything. I don't care. That's who David was. David didn't care if he was watching sheep or if he's got a throne and a crown on his head. Either way, I'm watching things to taking care of them, making sure they're okay. I'm either making sure the sheep are eating or I'm making sure the people are eating. I'm either protecting the sheep or I'm protecting the people. He saw no distinction between the two. And he could flop from a.m. to p.m. in both those jobs and it wouldn't, even, wouldn't affect him at all, at all. He saw nothing of himself. He considers all their works. David knows that firsthand. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Don't hope in those things. That's one of the hardest things David had to learn was to lose his horse to not have it as a standby or a backup. A lot of people are saying, yes, I'm trusting in the Lord. And in case God doesn't come through, I've got my trusty horse beside me. And that's a hard thing. When Paul tells them at the, in the middle of that storm, you know, um, uh, we, we, we've, we've, we've got to cut away the skiffs. The skiffs are the lifeboats. Those are the boats we get on when the big one goes under. We need the skiffs. Now you got to cut the skiffs away. Anybody that goes into the skiffs, the whole thing's going to go down. If we, get, if we have skiffs, they're all going to fall apart. The whole ship and everybody in the skiffs is going to die. So you got to cut the skiffs. They cut the skiffs. They listened to this guy. And then the ship fell apart. You imagine the looks he got then? Oh, great idea, cutting away the skiffs. Thought you said the ship wasn't going to break. No, I didn't say that. I said, if we keep the skiffs, all is lost. If we cut away the skiffs, we're going to survive. And they did. They all grabbed the pieces of driftwood from the broken giant ship, and they kicked their way, it was a long kick, all the way to the island, and they were all saved. Every single one of them, nobody drowned on that shipwreck because they kicked away the skiffs. They cut them away. That's the idea. David says, Don't, no, no king is saved by a multitude of an army. They can all be wiped out by God. It's whoever's, whoever's on God's side. It's whoever God has. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. David knew that our eyes should always be fixed on him to let him deliver us, however he sees fit, whatever that deliverance looks like. As we move into chapter 34 here, Psalm 34, 
It's an interesting uh, deliverance. He's talking about, it starts off as if to think, well, he's going to get us out of all of our problems if we just trust in him more, and that's not the case. Some people died, and he says, and God delivered them through death by taking them home to be with him in, to be with him in heaven is the idea. So keep that in mind as we go through this. This is the psalm he wrote after feigning madness. Let me read you the story really quick from 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, verses 12 through 15. This is the end of the story, basically. Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. He pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down uh, on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman? Uh, that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence. Shall this fellow uh, come into my house? Get rid of this guy. They're, they were so excited. We caught David. We caught David. Look at David's going, you know, he's doing his thing. He's like, this guy's crazy. He's not a threat to me. Let him go. And David's, you know, shuffling out of there. And he writes this psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's sing this song to God, David says. I want to sing it with other people, not just myself. I don't want to write it for, I want a a chorus of people singing in humility what God's done for them. Verse four, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. David is simply giving a testimony of what God has done in his life. Now, the next verse is very important for that. Because I give my testimony, I tell people what he's done. I explain all the wonderful works of God, and this next verse is very important. He tells everybody around him in the song, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Me describing to you what something tastes like is of no value. It's much better if you just take a bite. Now, I'm a little leery of my kids. And they look at me and said, oh, dad, taste this. I don't think I need to. You did this, you know. But when someone says, oh, you've got to try this. Well, now I'm interested, you know. And our social convention in America is like, no, that's okay. I'm sure it's good. You know, I don't know. I don't want to touch your fork. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Back then, they'd be like, give it to me. They'd be handing it to each other, you know, sharing the germs and all that. Taking advantage of it. When it comes to the Lord and you're talking about what he's done, all I can do is tell you what he's done, but you need to, you've got to taste and see. Because my testimony isn't going to carry you anywhere. And it isn't going to change your life. But when you taste and see that the Lord is good, good, blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. David's looking around and seeing all these young up-and-coming warriors and saying, look at them. I mean, they're just striving and struggling and scratching and clawing in this world. And I'm this old guy. It just kind of comes to me, you know? And he's not talking about stuff. Obviously, King David, of course, stuff comes to you. 
No, it's you're striving in your marriages or you're striving in this and you're trying to find out what the world's newest, latest, and greatest advice is for this, that, or the other thing. And it changes constantly. And you can hardly keep up with the books. You're done reading one book and a new book's out saying this book's wrong. Oh, and you know, spank your children. Don't spank your children. Let's get back to spanking. I don't think we should ever, you know, oh, no, 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 no. And the people are lost and they're scratching and clawing. David's like, oh, just trust the Lord. Let God lead you. You don't know what it means to be a dad. Let God teach you. Let God teach you how to be a dad. First of all, fill yourself with grace, mercy, and humility as a father, and you'll be a fantastic dad. Fill yourself with that. All the things that God calls us to be as Christians will make you a better dad. If you don't know how to be a mom, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what the right thing is to do. And you look to your former examples that you've had in your life, grandmas, great-grandmas, your mother. Maybe they were believers, maybe they weren't. Who knows? Trust the Lord. Let God make you into that woman that you need to be for your specific children. Every heart is fashioned individually. You don't know what they need. I don't put bike helmets on my kids. But other people do. And we're different that way. And you know what? Your kid will probably be smarter because they didn't hit their head on the concrete near as many times as mine did. But mine will survive and they'll know how to duck and dodge. But yours won't know how to duck and dodge, but they'll be able to add, you know. (laughs) And learn new languages. Trust the Lord and let him develop you into who you're supposed to be, you know, and who your kids are supposed to be. That's all David's saying. Don't don't scramble. Verse 11, come you children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. How can I get God to talk to me? How can I experience? Start doing the right thing in your life is what David's simply saying. Do you want to have a long life? Do you want to have love? Do you want to have a beautiful life in this world? As good as it can be, there's going to be heartache. I'm not saying it's it's problem free. Then start saying evil things. Start using, take away the evil speech. And if you don't have anything to say that's nice and good and uplifting and building, then don't say it. Oh, I'm going to be quiet an awful lot. Probably so. As we all, you know, with many words, transgression is unavoidable. One of the first scriptures, and here I am, you know, I'm up here talking and talking and talking. But you wonder why I'm so quiet afterwards or how how come he doesn't talk to me or whatever. Because... If I get going, how many times at that sound booth, Aaron, Toby, should I have just shut up once I stepped off these stairs and not walked back there and said, you know what? Just undoing everything I just taught. You just, you know, just stop talking, speaking evil. Don't lie. Just be honest. Depart from evil and then do a good thing. You know, it's not, it's not complicated stuff. Seek peace. Don't seek war. Seek peace. Look for it. You may find war. That's not your problem. You seek peace. And pursue it. I mean, strive for it. And then he says, verse 15, very important. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Those are the ones doing what we just read. And his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. That's what he wants. And if that's God's goal, 
is to cut off evil from the face of the earth, and I'm doing evil? Hello? No wonder. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Remember, he's going to qualify this in the next three or four verses. He delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. In other words, you may cry out, but something bad has happened to you to cause you to cry out. So you're in a troubled situation. You see where we're going here? I don't, shouldn't expect a rose garden, but I should expect that when I'm in trouble, I cry out to God and he's there to help. Here's what that help looks like sometimes. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Right after he said God's going to deliver us from all of our problems, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That's a prophecy fulfilled at the cross. Now, a lot of people stop there. I don't. He was crucified. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He had a crown of thorns wedged so tightly and slammed into his head that the thorns were embedded and the blood was ripping down. His beard was pulled out, but he didn't break any bones. Now, for me, I read that. I'm like, I'm glad that was a fulfilled prophecy, but this is what David's talking about when it says that God delivers us out of all of our troubles. It can look like a crucifixion still sometimes, but my bones weren't broken. Still, that's a pretty rough day. You see what I mean? I think we need to be very careful about our expectations and what God is going to do once he comes into our lives. You won't have any broken broken bones, but you will be crucified. Oh, and he will deliver you out of it which he did. Jesus rose from the dead, resurrected, new life, saved anybody that trusted him. You know, a wonderful work was done through that horrible, horrible day, you know. Evil shall slay the wicked, so they will be successful in slaying the wicked. And those who hate righteous, hate the righteous, shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in in him shall be condemned. There's no hell for those who trust in him. There's There's no forever burning. There's nothing. But there is a physical death. There is trials and tribulations. Now, David is, I think, maybe even checking himself as he goes through this song. I'm so glad that me spitting on my beard and acting like a crazy man got me out of that. I want to write God a song. And as he's going through that, he says, yeah, but I was also running from Saul at the time. I remember what forced me into this position. I remember how many people hate me. I mean, he's, he's gathering it all together, what this really looks like. We have to be very careful not to share platitudes, Christian platitudes with our friends and family. I'll trust the Lord. They're in a really bad place. Trust the Lord. I do trust the Lord, but I'm in a really bad place and I'm crying out to him right now and I hope he delivers me. And that deliverance can come any way he wants to bring it. I'm okay with that. but I do want him to bring that deliverance. I know it'll be best is the idea. And this is where we, we close here. But what a wonderful two set of scriptures as we go through these Psalms where God can kind of help us through David's understanding and it really does help us pull together all these verses and say, oh, 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 oh. 
I'm using that verse wrong, or I've misunderstood that. This is what it means. It really helps. It really helps. And I hope that we grow from this. And I hope, I hope we're drunk in the spirit, you know? I hope this affects us in such a way that we walk out of these doors and we're better counselors, that we're better friends, that we're better servants, you know? All these things, I hope they affect us in such a way that we're changed, you know, and different, and that the world can see it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for um, all of it, God, the whole counsel of God. The volume of the book speaks of you. Um, You're a very complex yet simple um, Lord, um, a Savior, a a Messiah. And Jesus, to get to know you in the depth um, that you're allowing us to do as we go through these Psalms is amazing, and we thank you for that. We want that depth of character. We want that depth of soul, that depth of our walk with you to be um, that we're intoxicated with you in every area of our life, Lord, that we let your word affect us, that we wouldn't just chew it up and spit it out, but we'd chew it up, swallow it, and let it, well, let it do what it's intended to do, nourish our entire bodies. That's what we want. So God bless these folks as they go today. Help them to keep your word planted in your heart. I know that birds come in. I know that the cares of life will come in and try to snatch away what was shared this morning. And if we're not careful, We'll let it. Help us to guard your word in our hearts and to keep it. And be aware of the birds that want to take it away. To be aware that the cares of life are meant to choke out its fruit in our lives, your word's fruit in our life. Help us to be aware of that and to to do what we can do to clear that space, to let your word grow in our lives. And we wouldn't cloud it or crowd it with the things of this world. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.